Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning chart of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the show, Che Lappin. Yeah, thanks for having me, Victor. Appreciate your time and the opportunity. Great to have you here. Now, Che, you've been in this game for a number of years, and certainly the Los Angeles market is interesting from a number of perspectives, not just from a real estate point of view, but it's also a great source of capital. There's a lot of wealth in Los Angeles. But before we dive into that, why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Yeah, absolutely. So the quick overview of how I've arrived at this career point of, of working at K Properties and the various syndications that are on our platform. You know, I started back in real estate prior to the previous major recession, the 08 scenario. And I really got into real estate because it was something that was more entrepreneurial. My background, I was training for the Olympics, uh, but my sport itself didn't provide an income, which was water polo. So we all had to take some sort of job. And a lot of people took lifeguarding jobs and things like that. But for me, I knew I wanted to get into the real estate sector. So I found a great group out of Los Angeles that allowed me to work full-time, but at odd different hours. And that's where I got my start. And we focused on a lot of multifamily, and it was for a lot of larger net worth, family office type investors. And then fast forward, you know, I made relationships and met Dwight K, who's our founder, and came on with him maybe about eight or nine years ago. Fast forward and having fun and and, uh, learning new stuff every day. I love it. So what has 2020 taught you about the business? How have things shifted in 2020 compared with maybe previous years? Yeah, for us, it was very interesting. So obviously in, in March and April, things kind of came to a halt. And especially in our, in our sector, we deal with a lot of 1031 exchanges. And so the IRS had given an extension at that point in time for everybody. And so everything froze. And in, you know, in the first half of the year, we were thinking, here comes something worse than 2008. Fast forward a cut, probably about June, July, really picked up steam. People got a little bit of confidence back. The transaction started going. And it, at the end of the day, we've had the largest year that we've ever had in the last 15 years. And I think that's primarily because our strategy and our focus within the specific vehicle of the Delaware Statutory Trust, the, the DST, is diversification, preservation of capital, and sticking more down the middle of the fairway rather than going for home runs. And that's always been our style box over the years. It really benefited us through the coronavirus to have that you know, diversification of asset classes. And then I think the biggest one was geographical diversification, because as we all know, every county, every city, every state, they're, they're reacting differently in today's environment. So people are getting affected differently. And our investor base has overall done very well through their portfolios. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the Delaware Statutory Trust. We talked about it last on the show back in August of 2019. So it's been a while. So let's give people a refresher on what the DST is and where it's used and how it plays into an investment strategy. The DST is ultimately... Uh, a trust, and it, it's been around for a long time. You know, various other investment entities use them, like mutual funds might use them in their charters and investment companies behind the scenes just because of that Delaware entity and various protections it could provide businesses. 
in the early 2000s, the IRS actually blessed the DST structure if it was the wrapper around real estate. So the underlying asset was real estate that it would qualify for the 1031 exchange. And really, it would qualify for a fractional ownership for 1031 exchange purposes. So previous to that, if you wanted to do a fractional ownership into real estate, you either had to be just a pure cash investor in like an LLC, a fund, or a REIT, some sort of vehicle along those lines. So for a 1031 exchange, the only option was a tenant in common. And there's pros about tenant in commons, um, but there's also some some cons. And I think the biggest is voting rights in the tenant in common structure that, you know, you're getting a bunch of strangers together and chances of getting 30 plus people to agree on something in a difficult time could cause issues for the overall investment. So the DST has provided an access to fractional investing, but everyone has an undivided interest. And ultimately you are putting the trust in the, the trustee of that, which we call the sponsor company. So, so I just want to I just want to underscore something that you mentioned here and make it very clear to the listeners. So, what you're talking about is a scenario where maybe you have one partner in a tenant in common scenario that might have five percent ownership, and you would think that in most structures, five percent ownership doesn't give you an overriding decision making control. But because their signature is on title, it means their signature is required for virtually everything. And by withholding their signature, they effectively have a veto on any decision, even though they may only own 5 or 5% or even yes, 1%. Absolutely. And in, in 2008, we saw this type of uh, issue come up on multiple occasions. You know, maybe an asset needs to be refinanced or a lease needed to be renegotiated. And you may know all of your tenant common investors at this point in time, but it's not to say that maybe someone unfortunately passes away and now someone that's taking over this state that's never ran real estate is now voting on something. And I don't want to say tenant commons are bad across the board. There are specific business strategies that utilize a tenant common, and we use it from time to time. But we found the DST to uh, more predominantly work. Okay, so I interrupted you. So keep going how the DST and the 1031 work together. Jumping back, that I just wanted to provide kind of a history. So in the early 2000s, when that IRS revenue ruling, which I think it's a very important to understand, a ruling is arguably stronger than a guideline. You know, a lot of 1031 exchanges are based on a guideline. You, you do A, B, and C, and it should therefore qualify. And so the revenue ruling came in in the early 2000s, and probably right around 2007, 8, 9 is where they really took off. And the whole syndication industry that would generally use the tenant in common structure or other structures switched to the DST. And even I find this a very interesting point that a lot of people who offer DSTs don't discuss is there is a lot of capital in the market that is just, you know, non-1031 exchange. We all hear about it on the the crowdfunding sites. There's billions of dollars going across REITs and things along those lines. When you invest into a REIT, an LLC, a fund, when there's a liquidity event, you're going to have a taxable event most likely. You know, you're going to have to pay your capital gains when that fund eventually sells their asset or the whatever it may be. If you do a cash investment into a DST structure, when that DST sells, all of the individual investors in the DST could then do a 1031 exchange on their own. They don't have to stay together. And so we've seen 
cash investments being deployed, you know, at higher chunks over the last two to three years for that purpose, rather than maybe investing into a REED or something along those lines. So is a Delaware statutory trust an expensive thing to set up? Is it expensive to administer on a year-by-year basis? There's obviously costs involved. One thing uh, with the DST is the DSC needs to close on that piece of real estate prior to the uh, investors coming in. And so as a management, and I've been involved, we have a sister company who, who actually structures DSTs. And so when we go out there on that side of the business and structure a DST, we you know identify the asset. We have to do all of our due diligence, hire attorneys, you know, negotiate the PSA, everything that you would do to kind of get to A to Z on a deal. And we front that capital. And so part of the cost of the DST is going to be that transactional, the real estate transactional cost that is not necessarily a profit center to us or a sponsor. It's just, hey, this is what it was and it's being reimbursed, but it is built into the deal. And then there is reserves. So one thing that's unique with the DST is you cannot do a capital call within that structure to investors where in a tenant common, again, you know, you run out of money or a curveball comes from a maintenance item or a retenanting situation, you could go to the investors theoretically and, and do a capital call. And so the DST has a relatively, depending on what kind of asset it is, but a healthy reserve account that is part of a fee, but it's investor owned. So if those reserves are not utilized over the hold period, which typically there are leftover reserves, those are distributed back to investors at the uh, liquidity event. And so the premium really where we all make money and the sponsor makes money is ultimately commissions and acquisition fees. And that's really what the premium on investing in these. And tell investors, you have to decide if that makes sense for you. Some of our investors could go out and buy this asset themselves, but I think that a lot of people are comfortable with it because over a five to seven year hold period, you usually can you know overcome those fees. And then also just the passive nature and that diversification that it provides is worth it to a lot of our investors. Earlier in our conversation, you made reference to high net worth individuals. Let's talk a little bit about what high net worth and ultra high net worth investors are looking for because there's often a misconception about what it takes to work with a high net worth investor. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have these calls on a daily basis with all sorts of investors. And I I do want everyone to know that DST structure, you do have to be an accredited investor, but we work with high net worth investors who maybe have a net worth of one to $5 million and then upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars of net worth. And for the latter end of that spectrum that you're referring to, ultra high net worth investor, at this point in their career or path, they're really looking to preserve capital. They're looking for a more predictable income stream because again, they've arrived. They've already taken all their risk and they've arrived at now riding it and having modest growth. Obviously, there's potential upside and outliers, but I I found that in speaking with a lot of our high net worth individuals, they're more looking at the actual fundamentals of the real estate rather than looking at the cap rate and just deciding on, I'm going to invest in that deal because it's returning a 7% and not understanding the risk that that brings. So they're really more focused on capital preservation. They're focused on predictability of returns. 
risk is probably front and center. And if you're offering an internal rate of return that's two or three percentage points higher, that's probably not going to be attractive to them, all other things being equal. Yeah, I believe so. And and I've seen that trend solidify over the last five years. I'd say 10 years ago, people were going gangbusters, chasing return. And I think that 2008 scenario put a, a shocker on some people, right? And, and our ultra net worth investors ultimately survived that, but they learned a lot. Absolutely. So as you're speaking with investors today, especially the ultra high net worth segment, what is it that they're looking for? Is there, are they simply looking for a safe haven because they just had an exit? They need to put that money to work in another asset within that window of the 1031 exchange, but they don't necessarily want to buy the wrong asset because they're forced to do so because of a time clock? Yeah, I would say that definitely is a segment. As I mentioned earlier, these the DSTs are prepackaged. Everything is there. So all the third-party reports that typically might take three to five plus weeks to get back, where that's where you're going to see the skeletons in the closet and having leases reviewed, et cetera. That's all there. So our clientele can look at that within a week and decide, okay, I'm going to pass on this or this actually makes sense for my situation. And so it's not that our clientele that falls under the alternate high net worth is looking to go fully passive. I have just found that they're getting half of their portfolio more into a passive nature. And then the risk taking where they are chasing maybe a little bit return or a little bit more of upside. I found that they want more control over that segment, which I completely agree, right? If you're taking a huge risk on maybe a development deal, if you have the capabilities and the wherewithal to to run that project, then you might consider doing that segment on your own and using us for more of your anchor of your portfolio. But one last thing I would like to say is there's a lot of ultra high net worth people, especially in the last 10 years that became very wealthy that never have managed real estate never been involved in real estate and they want to start placing capital in real estate. So that's also a segment that I have seen transitioning into our sector. That makes a lot of sense. We'll tell you folks want to connect if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Yeah. So we have a, a great platform and it's KPI, K as in kite, P as in Paul, I as in investment. So KPI 1031.com. If you were to Google SK properties and investments, we would pop up there. And we've done very well over the last 10 years of providing a great blog. So a lot of educational material there. Um, and you can reach out to us. And I think it really, although crowdfunding, there's a lot of access of information. This is still a sophisticated vehicle. And to get on the phone with us, I think is the most beneficial. This segment of investing real estate I, I don't believe should just be purely done on the internet. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and it's important to jump on the phone with, you know, an advisor and actually walk through all the pros and the cons and make sure that a particular investment is right for you rather than clicking on a crowdfunding side and investing, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, Jay, thank you for the insights and for the listeners at home. Definitely check out kpi1031.com. That's Kilo Papa India. 1031.com and reach out to Kate directly. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. 